Welcome to the Knife Journal Podcast, episode 43. It was way more uh, um, a quarter round than that is. Yeah. Way more. Well, and so, like, one of the things that that people are, um, you know, they're saying how great the quarter round is and all this. Douchebags, it's not a quarter round on the tops. Right. So, like, if you want a real quarter round, then make a real quarter round like they did on the, on the, back knife. On the, on the Beck and also on the Bark River version. Okay, yeah. so um, one of the things I'm going to try to do is to make this tops into an actual quarter round and see if it makes any difference. But um, I, I've said before, I'll say it again. I, you know, it's not the greatest knife ever made or whatever, but I, I like the design because of the visuals. Yeah, I, I love the visuals of the tracker style knife and I'm going to experiment and experiment and experiment until I can put my own spin on it and make something fun for me to use. Right. And so experiment number one is to try to I know for sure that a full height convex grind works on the front portion of the knife and a very high hollow grind works on the draw portion Um, but the problem you run into with that with a full height um, convex at the front portion and a draw in the back is that you end up with a vertical line between the two um, grinds and turning the corner between those two grinds is next to impossible to do artfully without a ball mill mm-hmm. so what what I'm trying to do is come up with some sort of a grind that I can execute with my home tools and still make this make this transition between the two grinds artful Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other appealing aspect about this design is that you have these nice sharp grind lines. Well, if you do right. a a full height convex grind, you aren't going to have those nice sharp grind, grind lines at least on the front portion. Now, are those are, are is that is that a hollow grind? Um, no, it's not. These are these these are flat grind and on the tops model, and I'm not sure what the uh, angle of that is. Um, on the Becks, um, some of some of the models I've seen have a, a hollow grind in the draw area, and and some don't. Some are made like this with a, a flat grind that transitions and turns the corner. So, you know, I'm uh, experimenting, playing, trying to figure out that process. Um, and so that's that's what's new in my knife world. I'm playing around and monkeying with it. And I'm not grinding anybody's knives. <laughs> so if you want, if you like what I make and what I produce eventually, nothing I have is for sale yet. Someday, if you like what I produce, then buy it. I'm not going to take a Topps knife so that you can have a $1,000 knife for 300 bucks and then bitch and when it's not exactly like you want it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the way. That's the way a lot of people are. They're funny. Yeah. Um, like I said, I I'm not, I, I I'm not a big fan of modifying, um, somebody else's knife for them. Yeah. I, I just, you know, my thing today that I'm going to talk about a little bit is neck knives. All right. And 
a lot of people have gotten the wrong impression over the years about me and neck knives claiming that I really don't care for neck knives that much. And and I don't because most people when they make a neck knife, they make a full size knife and they hang it around their neck. Yeah. And and I think that they're too big. I when I carry a tremendous amount of weight on my neck, I tend to get headaches. And when I say a tremendous amount of weight, I'm talking about this to me is a lot of weight to hang on my neck. So you're you're he's don't, holding up a, a, I'm not going to say the model. Okay. Um I'm he's holding up a knife that um is a it's a slightly miniaturized version of a um fixed blade knife. That knife weighs about two and a half to three ounces. Yes. I, I know because I have one. When you put this in the sheath, right. it becomes too heavy for me. Right. I, I don't it, it it's just an annoyance and I don't I don't see this as that much of a handy knife to have. Okay. Okay. Um and it's a it's a size thing. Uh-huh. Now I have I I went through my stuff about three three knives that I carry that are neck knives. One of them you'll recognize. I can't see it. Got to hold it up. Oh yeah. So Jim is holding up a knife that um with the knife and the sheath that weighs uh 1.5 ounces and that includes a lanyard and the ball chain. Okay. One that I made. Yeah, that thing is badass. I've actually held that this is this is a handy size. I mean, if you notice the two of them side by side, similar size. They're they're virtually the same size physically, uh-huh. lengthways. I think you actually have more cutting uh, edge on your knife uh-huh. on the knife that you designed. Um, what what I was trying to accomplish here was a controllability issue. Yeah, with with such a small knife, and I'll and I'll I will. Um, Put these on uh, Instagram. These three knives. Um, what what I have found when you have small knives like this is you end up with some kind of controllability issue. Uh-huh. Um, they have to be held a, a certain way, and to to be able to control them and make good artful cuts. Um, our friend from out west designed something that that kind of makes a little knife like this feel like a full size knife. Yep. Um, Rich precision. Yes. Yep. Mark Rich. Yep, and he and makes awesome, awesome stuff. This is the third knife that I consider for a long time. I've considered this to be the perfect neck knife. What is that thing? It's a Camillus made Talonite. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a knife. magic steel. Yep, yep, and and I'm telling you, I've wore this for a long time, and you, sh- I can literally put the edge back on it with my jeans and I've done so I, I don't think I've ever ground on this knife with anything other than a pair of Levi's I don't think I've ever put this on a leather strap so um, and, and I'm, I'm not sure you know I'm, a, I'm not a steel um, I'm, I'm not a steel whore I, I don't go after the, the latest and greatest steels and say that this is the only reason this knife is good um, I like this knife because it's again the right weight uh-huh. You know, it's probably in the ounces, under an ounce. Um, and, I, and I've just had good luck with it uh, over the years. And uh, um, so so what I've done is I've tried to, when I when I designed my knife, uh-huh. I tried to 
take some of the elements from that knife and then some of the elements from some fixed blade knives that I like and then try to put something that's extremely controllable with with a small handle because it's actually my the knife that I designed is actually a little bit smaller than this talonite knife and it's actually a little bit smaller than your knife actually not lengthwise it's about the same physical size as your knife but um but I've added elements to it that that make it um more more controllable in your hand and uh -huh. and I I think that that's the that's the big deal with a small knife like that it's not it's not really a it's about having a lot of knife in a real small package and right. I think that that's the I think that's the um that's what a neck knife is a neck knife to me should not try to replace a fixed blade knife on your belt it should not try to replace a big folding knife in your pocket it shouldn't be this no that's that's my opinion you know what you, you know where i see a role for that kind of mid-sized knife um again this is the original knife that jim was holding up i don't want to say the maker um but uh the, and and the he's role, not the only one that makes this size knife. Right. I mean, well, most, it's, it's, it's this is most manufacturers' neck knife. Okay. So let me let me just see what comes up um, if I do a Google Images search for neck knife. Um, so I imagine um, there's one that's um, down uh, on there. You know, just the average sized neck knife that's popping up. So one that'd be made by like Tops or um, well, I think I think you know, that's the same commercial. size as the Bark River. I think that's the same size as the Bark River. I think it's the same size as the as the right. as the Becker. So your your typical manufacturer um, neck knife. That's that's the size of knife that he's talking about. But I don't want to say the the brand. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, well, the like I, I was what I was getting at was that is the size that typically they make. Right. That almost every maker makes that size neck knife. Right. And and what I was gonna say is, is that the the way I see a role for that knife is in um in either your back pocket if if it fits and if it's comfortable, although I, I don't think that those are extremely comfortable in a pocket, or um it's small enough and thin enough that it can go in a, a pocket on a bag real easily, like um, the Becker Field bag. Those things disappear into there. Mm -hmm. um, another th another place you could use it would be um, just throw one in, in your car somewhere just to have anything. Right, and that's you typically know. where that is. That's yeah. typically where this is, is in the center console of my, of my truck, right. my Jeep. And, it, and it's not... Um, I mean, like I said, I, I I like the knife. I mean, it's not that I don't like the knife. I just don't like the knife as a neck knife. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think it's a um, I don't think it's a very handy neck knife. Right. Right, and that's um, you know, I think you're you're definitely on to something, and that's when why when I went about designing a um, a knife that you could wear on a chain around your neck, I designed something that weighed an ounce and a half. Uh, it's basically flat, but then I worked on the the ergos to have controllability. So mm -hmm. you'll see that there's jimping in in some areas and not in others. And you know, my my thing is I just don't want to um, lock somebody's hand into a certain position. 
Um, so I, I played around, experimented, experiment, and that's what I came up with. Um, right. There's there's certainly other ways to do it, but at any rate. Um, but the but the thing is, is that it's a small knife, right? And and if you're going to wear a knife on your neck, I think for a long period, like for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. it has to be, especially if you're using a chain. I mean, if you're using a chain that uh, that tends to be um, I mean, it's and it's wise, to, I think, to put them on a breakaway train because that's what it's what it's for. Yeah. Um, but the but I think that if you wa- if you put too much weight on your neck, um, it can be the cause for some headaches. And if you're going to wear a knife on your neck for an extended period of time, you know, you got to wear it outside your collar. You got to wear. I mean, any one of these knives, I can put underneath my shirt. Yeah. And and you have to really examine what it is that you're trying to do. Are you trying to have something there when everything else is lost? I mean, um, you know, if you have if you get your pants caught on something and rip your rip your pockets out and your knife goes flying, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you, you're totally without a knife. You need to have some, have something. Every time a car goes by, he's going to start barking. Can Come on, you, go to sleep. Maybe you could put him inside <laughs> under the bed. <laughs> maybe I could just put him in a coffin <laughs> and bury him. Come here, Stormy. Stormy. I don't know what his. I don't know what he's up to today. Why he's so he's so antsy today for some reason? At every little noise, t- and he's not been like that a lot lately. Come here and lay down. Come here by me and lay down. Come on, it's okay. Be like the other guys. They're all laying down and being quiet. The the other thing that I like to because I I just don't like having anything around my neck. So the right. the other thing that I designed into my particular knife was I want to be able to put it in any pocket and not notice right. it. If you want right. to put it in your front pocket and then sit down and put your knees up to your chin, do anything, right. you should not notice it. It should not pinch. It should not bother right. you. And so those are some features that I think if you're designing a knife. A small knife like that; those are some things that I think you should look into, right. and then and then make sure that it's it's usable. I mean, you're not going to use it to like, you know, conquer the world, but no, for, but you know what? You could for a small knife. You could um, with this knife. Mm-hmm. You could easily skin a deer. Oh yeah, and no dress problem. a deer out with it. Yeah, without well, any issue at all. Yeah. Well, the original knife that you held up. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have completely uh, skinned, cleaned, uh, drawn, and quartered an entire deer with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty confident that with a little elbow grease, you could do it with any of those smaller neckers too. Oh sure. Because after all, fun. you know, a buck one ten will clean the hell out of just about any animal. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you mm-hmm. look around at your hunting buddies, what are they using? You know, they're right. using like some folding Gerber or something, you know, right. or some folding buck. They work just fine. You don't need like some monster knife to do it. Right. Know? So, anyway. Right. That's, yeah. always, that's always becomes the issue at deer camp is what, what size knife are you, you know, do you need? Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys, like a lot of guys actually are over knifed and, you know. And then I they mean, then they make a mistake because they don't they can't control the knife they have and they poke into the guts and it exactly yeah. exactly and then it's an issue yeah then it's an issue I mean I 
like I said, I like big knives, but I but it's it's real difficult when you use knives a lot. It's real difficult to try to find a reason to have a big knife. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that becomes the quandary that that people that actually use knives have. Well, um, yeah, I, you know, you know the, <laughs> if you're going to use it as an intimidation factor, or you're going to use it as you know in a in a battle type situation, you want to have a you know a predator style knife that's that's uh, you know some gigantic short sword that you want to use, and it's for whacking off. Uh, people's heads or something, Conan the Barbarian style or something like that. <laughs> that's that's one thing. But I mean, if you're actually, you know, I there was a a while back I saw a um, there was a survival instructor that actually used a uh, his his carry and he was he was like an instructor in Canada in the bush in Canada, <clears throat> and he actually used a um, a Randall Model 14. Yeah, yeah. Which goes against all of the traditional survival guy, instructor, you know, bushcraft. Yeah. You know, their mantra. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know. Well, it's, I think it's whatever you feel comfortable with carrying. If, yeah. As long as you can carry it and use it and and not hurt yourself in the process, you know, that... That um, you know, because people say that to me all the time. They ask me what what kind of knife should I use as a survival knife, and you know, I end up falling back to you know what? It's the knife that you end up carrying, having when you were in trouble. Well, I'd, I'd I'd say if you have the opportunity to plan, then then plan on something um, that you're comfortable using, yeah. something that and you've see, used before and practiced with, and, and, and see, know the I limitations. Say, I say this all the time. It's like well. If you've planned properly, you don't need to be in a survival situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't say that. Um. <laughs> I, I say that all I say that all the time. Yeah. Because because every time, every time I run into a snag, I don't think I I rarely think of it as a survival situation. Right. And a lot of people think of it. Oh my God, that's that is a survival situation. It's like well, like the tree that fell across the road. I, you know, I don't think of that as a survival situation. Unless I didn't have an axe in the back of my car, yeah. Then, then I suppose that if you were, you know, then you became stuck because you had to back up, you know, five miles to the nearest crossroad. Well, yeah, I suppose you could pretty much be quick in a survival situation. Yeah. But if you plan properly and you have the ability to clear the brush out of the way, you know, you're not gonna. I'll employ my big double bit, my little double bitted axe, and. <laughs> and clear the roadway out real quick, then it's not a survival situation. It's just monkey a situation. Business. Yeah, you know, just just doing what it's you always do. Fun in the woods. Now, um, back to the subject of uh, big knives versus small knives. Um, why do you suppose it is that I gave you the small knife versus the massive <laughs> nine-inch Versteg Bowie? <laughs> Because you would not use the Versteg Bowie. No, it's not. No. It's not useful for the types of stuff that we do. It's awesome right. to like have and have this big, huge like crocodile Dundee knife, and uh, you know play with it and show it off and stuff. But as far as what you're gonna, what are you gonna use that thing for? You know, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so I didn't want to give you something that would not be useful for you. Right. Right. But well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, and you just didn't want me to badmouth that big ass knife, anyways. Well, that's that's <laughs> true. 
uh, honestly, that was like 90% of it is because I know what kind of a knife you're going to like. You're not going to like that knife. Yeah. You're just not because it's not going to be useful for you. You're not one of these guys that just yeah. goes out and bangs like a monkey with a stick on a log just to sh- just because you can. Yeah. You know, you know what, though? I, I like, uh, I was talking to Mike about this the other day, and, and uh, um, I have not tried out a Bravo 1 LT. Have you have you got one of those? I don't. Yet? No, I I don't. It's that, I, it's I actually don't own one? any of those. He's he's I uh I want the thin one. That's yeah, the one yeah. that I've been arguing for since the Bra- since I first held a Bravo one. Yep, yep. Well, it's a thin version, and he was telling me that that's the one that he likes now. Yeah. Well, um, uh, in and, that and, in that line, um, you know, I I have held a LT. I don't own one. I and I haven't used one in the woods. But I have used fairly extensively a Bravo One in the woods, although I don't own one. I have borrowed one. Um, I, I found the Bravo One to be great. It's it's yeah. been an awesome knife. Um, but if it was a little thinner, I'd like it more better. <laughs> yeah. See, to me, I come back to the Bushcraft knife, which which you know, it's the funny thing about about knives is it's an it's an evolving thing. It's yeah. an evolving love affair. Right. Um, I still fall back to the Aurora. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I still like the Aurora. I like the pointiness of it for some reason. I, there's nothing that that knife can't do. Absolutely yep. nothing that that knife can't do. Uh, it's extremely controllable. And because of, the, because of the blade shape, it allows you to do things that, that you probably couldn't use such a big knife for. Yeah. Um, you just have to be aware that the blade is that long. Yeah. Uh, because that's a, but that's about as big a knife. If I was going on like a, like an extended, yeah. like I'm going to be in the Monkey woods business. for months, yeah. for months, I still wouldn't take any bigger knife than that. That's, that to me is, um, is the, well, I mean, I'm, and I'm not talking about a machete for, for the Amazon or anything like that. I'm talking about something that that you're going to be doing, like, um, you know, seriously making your camp livable for a long period of time. Um, like if I had a reoccurring camp that I go to the same place all the time and I wanted to better it, but I, but I wanted to better it with things that are in the woods. I wanted to make chairs. I wanted to make tables. I wanted to make that kind of stuff. I wanted to drill holes and stuff. That's still a knife that I would choose. Yep. I would st- that is to me one of the best knives that he's ever that he's ever made, that he's ever designed. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's funny because that's I, I don't you know, a lot of other knives that Mike does, you can trace its lineage to other things. You know, he ch- he changes the handle shape, he makes something a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, a little taller, takes designs that were that were not the greatest and tweaks them and makes them really work because uh, that's what he he's real good at that at doing that uh-huh um th- i don't know i don't i'm not sure what he did where he got that the idea for that knife from what what that evolved out of because that because it's kind of sort of puko-ish only only more sizable hmm. um i don't know it's that's a yeah. uh, I'm gonna have to ask him about that because because that, that's a uh, um, that's one of those knives that is uh, really 
you know, really a useful, useful knife. And like I said, that's the one that I, I that's my go-to knife. I use that all the time. Hmm. Um, if I'm if I'm not going into the woods, if I'm just like around the around the yard, around the town, around the you know, around in back in the back of my place where I'm not going any extended distance, uh-huh. um, I use that bushcraft light, that little. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the little baby one. Yeah, those are awesome. I, any of those knives is it, it does the trick. You know, I I've done some um, some fairly extensive uh, wilderness expeditions before, and I I have uh, for a long time I would carry a um, fixed blade knife like you're talking about, like a be- standard belt knife, and uh, some. Basically, what you're describing that that size of knife is typically what I carried. So mm-hmm. um, I have uh, somewhere in my office here. I have a a Gerber um, from the 1980s, and I always forget the model number. Uh, it's like a oh I don't know. I, I'll, I'll if we take a break, I'll try to find it and read the model number later. But that that's got basically the same idea, blade shape, length, um, comfortable handle, those sorts of things that I took for a long time. Another one that I um, really really like and still like is the um, BK16 by our friend uh, Ethan Becker. And then, mm-hmm. of course, any of the you know I don't I didn't have a huge amount of um, Bark Rivers um, until just recently. The only one I had was the Boone 2, and I used that more for hunting, not for expeditions, because it has a stacked leather handle, and I was worried about um, some environmental problems with that. So for mm-hmm. for big um, expedition-type stuff like you're talking about, I like a uh, basically impervious uh, handle that um, is more or less weatherproof, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And so I gravitated towards things like the BK-16 and stuff like that. Um, modern day, like today, if I was to go and use that system, uh, you know, use a knife like that, uh, I've been playing a lot, lot, lot with this. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. This is uh, Jim Stewart's design um, called the uh, Springbook. Mm-hmm. Like um, the the only thing I would do, I would bring I would bring this knife um, again, blue uh, G10 handle. Why? Because it stands out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my mind, on on a knife that I'm going to bring and rely on, you I have two choices. It's either orange or blue. Period. And um, so I bought I bought this one in blue. I'd bring this knife. It comes with a leather sheath. Um, uh, made, I, I can't remember who made this one. I can't read it on here. Uh, this one isn't made by Great Lakes. It's made by his other supplier. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's leather, um, and it's my own personal thing. I would probably make a, a Kydex sheath for this if I was going to take it into um, shitty environments. See, I, you I, know I, what? I know, and, I know and you're, you're going to disagree with me, and that's fine. Yeah. We're just going to, you know, you, you're I'm just probably not a fan right. of Kydex. Okay, um, I, I mean I, I like I, I I've yet to see a leather sheath rot. Okay, um, and you know, and you're probably right. Um, le- leather shoes don't rot. Oh, they do too. They fall apart like fucking crazy. 
um, especially ones that are manufactured. These are these sheaths are like works of art. They're basically mm-hmm. handmade. Um, they're made like olden times leather shoes. These are not mm-hmm. made like modern leather and shoes with modern glues and all these sorts of things. These are like stitched. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we we encountered some problems with sheaths that were manufactured this way. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and take take it or leave it. You know, it's it's fine. You have different experience. That's okay. Um, personally, I would I would modify. The only thing I would change is I would bring a different sheath. Yeah. Okay. Now, what what do I really carry? Um, I love 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 a parang and a small folder. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just love it. I love the u- utility of a a parang. Um, that's correctly made um, with a good handle, and uh, that you put in a a sheath and, and strap to the molly on the side of your pack, and then a um, a small folder like a I don't know I've been carrying a a Victorinox Spartan lately, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know something like that. Um, I've also carried yeah for folders I've carried the DPX Hess 2.0 in that combination into some shit. Um, but other than that, I, you know, but if I was going to choose right now out of my current collection, a belt knife, I'd, I'd take Jim's knife. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah, that been, is, that is a very good looking design. Yeah. And I've, I've been, and it's comfortable in the handle. It, the edge geometry is very, I mean, it's awesome. It's got a good tip on it. Um, I just, I can't say anything bad about it. I just love it. So that's my take. <laughs> Shall we uh, move to uh, some reader emails, or do you have uh... Where do you buy your knives? Knives Ship Free is a proud sponsor of the Knife Journal podcast, which is a great reason to try us out. Knivesshipfree.com carries all of your favorite brands at competitive prices, and everything at Knivesshipfree.com ships for free. It's like it's in the name. Chris Reeve, Bark River, Benchmade, Spider Co., Great Eastern Cutlery, Zero Tolerance, all the best brands are at KnivesShipFree.com. Hey, I got, uh, I got, I, I think I might have solved some of my aging meat problem. Okay, tell us. Okay, so I happened across a website that they took, uh, you know, I've been playing with, with, um, I, I love, I love, uh, cured meat. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I did, a, I did some loins the other day, and a lot of times I've been stopping short and just making Canadian bacon out of it, or a Canadian bacon style product. Right. And, and, um, this time, I, uh, I, I cured it for um, uh, 
t- about 10 days. Mm-hmm. And then I hung it in the smoker, and I smoked it for 12 hours. Okay. Um, never got over 100 and... I bet you it never got over 120, 130 degrees. Oh, so you almost, you kind of cool smoked it even. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Then I took it and I put it in a, this is the part that I found on the website, on a website. Uh Uh-huh. Was they were, they're dealing with the same issue. You know, if it's too warm during the day, you can't do this stuff in the summertime. Right. You can't, you have to do it in the wintertime where you can keep something where it doesn't go over 55, 60 degrees. Yeah. And and keep the the humidity right. Yep. So what they found out was that you can take a piece of meat like this that's been cured, salt cured, mm-hmm. smoked. You throw it into a food saver bag, suck out everything, mm-hmm. and then put it in the refrigerator for five to ten weeks. What does that do? It dry cures it. Is it Somehow a special it, food saver bag or just any? Just the food saver bag that you that you vacuum, you know, one of the yeah, vacuum yeah, seal yeah, I got bags. I, yeah, that's how I do it. Yep, and just leave it in the fridge for fi- for for five weeks, five to five. Well, they said or more. They said five weeks will do it, and it will give you a cure that is supposed to be. You don't need refrigeration. Hmm. Yeah, that's nice. So so I've got some in there that should be ready to go. For our trip that I'm oh, going to be planning on taking. Now I I did I did sneak some out earlier and I was keep kind of keeping it refrigerated and actually I left it out one night so I and then I ate it the next day and I haven't died so uh, even overnight it seems to be fine just the way I had it. Uh-huh. Um, it it's a little bit more dry than um, than my Canadian bacon was, but uh, I asked I thought it was my first couple bites I thought it might be a little bit too salty. So I, I shared some with my wife, and she said, and I said, do you think it's too, and she's one that's like, if it's too salty, she doesn't like it at all. And she said, you know what, that's not too salty. It's actually very tasty. And mm-hmm. so I shared it with a couple other people, and they're like, oh, you know what, that tastes pretty damn good. So I'm thinking I might be onto something. And um, like I said, this, this uh, vacuum sealing bag thing, if that gives me the type of, of preservation that I don't have to have refrigeration on it after five weeks, um, all of a sudden that becomes a, a real nice option to yeah. curing meats in the summertime. That you can take with you on your trips. Exactly. Um, exactly. My, uh, I I make full use of the cool weather. Yeah. So as as soon as uh, as soon as it gets um, to you know fifty five to sixty degrees in my basement, I start hanging meat. Yeah. Um and you've you've had uh quite a bit actually of the stuff that I make. I make bacon, dried beef, yep. all these sorts of things. It didn't um, last long. Well, yeah. It, it it wasn't because it rotted though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. liter- literally all of that dried beef was gone. Um Well, like I days. said, I never even I never even um I, it was kind of funny because I, when I first opened it up and I took a piece out of it, I was like, "Well, fuck that! I am not putting this in with anything else." Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. just gonna eat this straight up. Yeah, because it was so tasty. Yeah, well, that I, was a, that was an eye of round. Eye of round. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna have to do one of those. Yeah, well, I have, like I said, I have that video on my YouTube channel. If you follow that exactly, you will get exactly that. Yeah, so that's how oh, I've done I've it, and it's it, it's uh, that method works. I, I don't know what to tell people, but. Um, well, I tell you that that um, I, I'm curious to see 
uh, how this lasts uh, out of refrigeration because um, I mean it, it has a phenomenal taste to it. Like uh-huh. I said, it's pork. It's pork, so it's uh, you know it kind of has a bacony taste to it, nice smoky bacon taste to it. Uh-huh. Um, but it it uh, it really does, and it and it seems to be a little more dry than mm-hmm. than what I normally do. And I, it might have been because I was smoking it for so long. And it had a chance to, and I hung smoke it. I mean, I was actually hanging it in the smoker. Uh-huh. I, I got my box smoker out, and I was, you know, instead of using the, the round smoker, I was using the box smoker and and uh, smoked it with maple maple uh, wood. Yep. Uh, and, and I tell you, it was phenomenal. I mean, it really does have a great taste to it. So I'm going to I'm gonna be bringing some of that stuff with, uh, with me, and, and I'll share it with everybody. And... Sweet. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I I may take it out of the packaging and slice it prior to bringing it up there, so it's all might, sliced. Real yeah, thin. it might be easier. Yeah. Um. Although although it won't be using knives, so I got that issue. Okay. So um, here's uh, here's what I like um with Canadian bacon. I like uh to slice it fairly thin. And put it on an English muffin with an egg and some oh, yeah. a slice of, uh, you know, processed American cheese. I actually make, uh, for every once in a while, I make breakfast like that for Kathy where, where she's in a hurry and she wants to eat something on the way to work or something. Yeah, wrap it up. Take it yep, with you. Wrap it up. And, and I'll take an English muffin. I'll take that bacon. I'll take an egg. And then sometimes I'll use... Um, uh, cheddar cheese, a, a nice cheddar cheese, uh-huh. or if I'll, I'll put a slice of avocado on it, and she absolutely absolutely loves that to have a slice of yeah, avocado. Yeah, that on that it. would be good. You know, it just seems like it's a nice a nice combination that works real well. Yeah. So here's another thought, a way you could use those. Uh, make it like a BLT, only instead of using bacon, use Canadian, oh, your Canadian bacon. Uh, yes, and I have done that. And put and a fried is, egg on it. That's boom. Oh, booyah. <laughs> BLT with a fried <laughs> egg, dude. Man. Well, I tell you, I, I've used my Canadian bacon on BLTs, just a regular nice. BLT. And they're, and it's, it is way better than, well, except for Plath's bacon. If you, if, you know, use, when I go to Plath's and I buy bacon, which, uh-huh. by the way, is the best bacon in the country. What about, I'm sure what about the stuff I made meat. for you? That was good. Yeah. That was good. That's from but a that's from a that's, Berkshire hog, you know. I get those but special that's, raised. But that's, but that's such a limited quantity. Yeah, I know. It's more like artisan bacon. You can't really exactly. compare artisan to commercially available. Exactly. If you, um, and, and any of the people that are going to Glib and want to get bacon, um... That's the place. Plath's is the place to go to get bacon. I'm gonna bring some of mine up too. Yeah, it's it's. I go up. I go to Plath's. I they slice it for me thick, and Mm -hmm. I I get it to where it's like, like a quarter of an inch thick. It takes a long time to cook it, but it is so good. It's not even funny because it has. Oh, it's just phenomenal, and they're and they're consistently good, and and it's not it's not horribly expensive. Like, um, and it's way better than anything you buy in the store. Right, way better than anything that you buy in the store. And I know, uh, you know, Ethan likes Benton's bacon. It's good. And I, that's I like good. it. It's kind of smoky though. It a little bit of that goes a long ways. Yeah, yep. Um, um, this last batch that I that I I smoked has a has a tremendous smoky taste to it. 
Yeah. Um, you got to be because careful. because it was in the smoker for such a long time, and I think yeah. it dried it out quite a bit, and that that may be why um, that may be why the vacuum packing after smoking it for that period of time it draws out the balance of the moisture, and you might be surprised that there's very. I mean, when you're when you're curing meats, uh-huh. what you're trying to do is limit the moisture content in the meat, and and have a a um, uh, uh, you know, you have to have a, an environment that botulism and bacteria doesn't like. Yep. So you're you're when you're curing meat, you're attempting to create an environment and also make it tasty for humans. Yes. <laughs> and what, what do they call it? An anaerobic environment? Is that well, the official terminology I, basic, of it? Most of the cured meats um, that don't have to be refrigerated are not an anaerobic environment. They are an osmotically impossible environment for bacteria to live in. So if a bacteria lands on your piece of beef jerky and tries to establish itself, all of the water in that beef jerky is going to be sucked out, or uh, in that bacteria is going to be sucked out by the salt content and osmotic pressure from meat. So most of the most of the dried and cured uh, meat products are going to Number one, be drier than bacteria need to live in, and number two, um, are going to have preservatives in them like uh, nitrates and nitrites and things like that that are toxic to bacteria but tasty on the human tongue. Yep. So, so that's what we've that's what we've created with this, and so, yep. um, and and as long as it's not so salty, it's pretty good. Yeah, you know, you, and you I got to wash it off. Yeah, and um, I think that. Um, uh, I think that I seem to have gotten this, and it must be that the that the hanging in the smoker allows it to drain quite a bit, and it'll dry. And the, yeah, it, yeah, and then and then when you put it in the vacuum sealer, that what does that do? It sucks, it sucks the moisture out of the meat because yeah. you can see it. You can see the moisture creep out into the bag. Yeah. And so I'm sure that when you open it up and you take a a, a, a piece of towel paper towel and you dry that off yeah um there's virtually no i mean there's, well, the, it's going to be the, pretty dry the other the other question i would have is i've seen those bag systems but they're semi-permeable so that water vapor can come out i wonder um i wonder if the food saver is the same way so that water vapor can come out if that's the case then you would expect drying of the beef product over time Hmm. Um, I don't know though, but I know there is a, a commercially available company that is water permeable, or water vapor permeable, but not water permeable. So that what so happens it goes, is, so the vapor goes out of the bag. Vapor goes out of the bag as you would expect, especially hmm. if you have good air circulation around it. Now, um, here's a question. Uh, so, um, here here's um, something people might be interested in. Um, you've heard of dry aged beef. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's why dry-aged beef is more expensive and more tasty. So if you have a a five-pound hunk of meat, a certain proportion of that is going to be water, and a certain proportion of that is going to be tasty beef flavor. So if you dry-age it, all you're doing is you're letting it sit for a while, and the water content decreases, but the beefy flavor stays the same. So that what, goodness. Right, so that what you end up with is a tastier, beefier tasting product if you let it sit for a little bit. So the cost goes up because the weight goes down 
of you right. have to charge more because um, water left and the weight decreases, and then also you have to store it for a while. So you've got some some storage costs and time, and, well, and your beef is you know getting and marketed. It's, a, it's interesting as, too because they were could. talking about. Uh, when when you're curing meat, that's how you measure the the moisture content. And it is you weigh it prior to, to yeah. the process starting, and then you weigh it after it's in. And you want it you want to get what was it thirty? I don't remember the exact number, but it was like a percentage of it, thirty yeah. percent or thirty percent of the original weight means it's done, okay. or something like that. So you're removing thirty percent of the moisture is what they're claiming. Yeah, there's a, actually the ca- the calculation is a little bit or, more complicated, and it's like a SAT question. It's not what you think it is, so I always get screwed up on it. Yeah, um, but well, it's like you're removing seventy percent of the moisture, and you're re- and you're leaving thirty percent. Yeah, it's crazy. There's some crazy calculation, and if I sat long enough, I could figure it out. But I I forget just off the top of my head. But if you want to dry age beef, uh, and I do this every year at Christmas time, I go and I buy a three to four bone bone in uh rib roast so it's basically prime rib uh and then do they call that standing rib roast a yeah standing rib roast? yeah but make sure you get it bone in uh-huh. um that's very very important because that's a huge amount of flavor is imparted so what you do is you take that rib roast and you have a tupperware container or plastic container that's big enough to hold it right you're going to tip it upside down so it needs to have a flat lid and uh, on that flat lid, you're going to put some paper towels, then your beefy goodness, and then the Tupperware part is going to fit over the top. Now, you have to drill holes in that Tupperware thing so that um, so that air can circulate in and around your beefy goodness and so that water vapor can escape the meat. And what you do is you put that in your fridge. Um, I've The longest I've ever let it go is about... Uh, uh, 20 days, and at that point, um, you'll have it'll be much less, um, it, much less heavy. But then it develops kind of a, a thick crust around the outside. So what I do is, you cut that crust off, and then and then prepare it like you would any kind of a dried meat. But um, uh, I typically, if I'm going to try to dry aged beef, will buy a massive hunk, like the strip, the New York strip. I buy the mm-hmm. entire strip, mm-hmm. and then dry age that, cut the cut the uh, rind off, and then you're good to go. And it's the tastiest you know, you know, you've it's, ever had. You know, it's funny. We used to be able to get those for two bucks a pound. Jeez, a whole a whole loin like that for two bucks a pound, and and. I'd be like in heaven. You know, you slice those up and, and package four of them to a package and pop them in the freezer flat. Yeah. And and you pull them out and, man, oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, you can, in bulk, um, like if you go to Sam's Club or Costco or some of these places, you can still get beef um, at, a, at, a, at certainly less than you would pay if you tried to get it in the grocery store. Right. Uh, but you're going to be buying, buying, the whole, you're buying a, whole a whole chunk loin, of it. Or you're buying yeah. a whole... Um, and they roast. weigh, and it seems to me they weigh sometimes thirty pounds. Yeah, you're you're looking at a you're you're going to spend uh, hundred and fifty bucks yep. on on a whole um, thing. But the the difference being that um, the value of that meat, if you bought it individually, is probably three or four hundred dollars. And the most wonderful part of it is you get to use your knives. To That's cut them right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've we've had some uh, good uh, discussions on uh, that sort of thing. Do you, you have another topic you want to address, or do you want to move I, on to user 
emails. Yes, we need to do e- emails, but I need to go get another coffee and drain off my last one. So okay. let's take a two-second break. Okay. And we'll put some good music on. Alrighty. And uh, we'll be back in a moment. Alrighty. Okay, so we're back. Um, while we were on break, I, I found the model number of that Gerber, and Jim can do a um, little Google Images search here. There's something I, a couple points I wanted to make about that knife. It's the Gerber A400. And um, the one that I had is basically, if you do a Google Images search, it's basically that. Um, it had a black handle and then a sheath, like a, a sheath, a leather sheath that you just push the knife in and drops down in and nothing really secures it so mm-hmm. here that knife is actually oh, yeah, yeah. that knife is actually where a few of my thoughts about knives came from um, mm-hmm. one thing is is that so I was I spent a lot of time in the woods and um, that was one of the, one of the first knives that I had I had a, a buck that um, before that buck fixed blade but that was one of the first fixed blades and I used to I really liked the knife shape and and everything it had comfortable ergonomics and stuff okay so I'm walking around in the woods and I got back to the house and oh shit there's no uh, knife in my knife sheath so I went and retraced all of my steps and okay you there's no possibility of finding it. I spent days looking for it literally days retracing everywhere that I went couldn't find it um, here's one problem, okay? That the knife had a black handle. Mm. If it had an orange handle or a blue handle, boom, it it, st- it sticks out like a sore thumb. The other thing is, is that the sheath had no retention system. Right. Uh, it, it did not lock in there at all, and I do not trust a, a sheath um, for a wilderness that does not have some sort of retention. And uh, it, those are a couple lessons that I learned from that particular knife. Yeah, that was a that was actually a um, an Almar design. Yeah, uh, and and a good design. That's yeah, a, that's actually a a very well respected knife. Yeah, um, and uh, I I just it's not like at the time I knew what to look for in a knife. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, you know I was what? Like, That's you. I was like you could have done far worse. Yeah, you could have well, done far worse. You know, I picked up a bunch of knives. This is back when they had knife shops, and I was on a Wild West trip um, with my uh, folks, and and they had knife shops back then. So I walked into mm-hmm. a knife shop, picked up and played with a bunch of knives, and that's the one I liked. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. Uh, Let's see. What do you want to talk yeah, about you next? Yeah, you you could have done further, You could have done a lot worse. Well, I I I still like the knife. I bought a replacement for it, um, and I still use it occasionally. Although um, I'm grad graduating more towards um, knives that fill up your hand a little bit more for mm-hmm. ergos. Um, but uh, the blade, there's nothing wrong with that blade shape and that design. That's it's been a functional great design for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. What do you want to talk about next? 
I'm I'm uh, um, I'm pretty much an open book. Okay, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't uh, matter. I'm fair game. How about we address uh, emails? Lead, lead and the way. Okay, lead the way. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any? Do you have any um, letters from? I have one that's handwritten. I'll get to that later. But do you Whoa, have any? Really? That, yeah. Well, I I do have some stuff talking about the um, uh, about the trip. Okay, let's hear. Um, a couple of guys asking questions about wives and girlfriends and and uh, wanting to bring uh, dogs. Um, and and I guess I don't have a problem with somebody bringing a dog with us, but as far as leaving it in your car, um, uh, let me let me read the, uh, the 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 letter here. I think I forward forwarded this to you. Um, Jim Kyle, I'm thinking about going to GLIB. I had a couple of questions, though. My wife would like to go. Um, I did not think that would be a problem. Since Absolutely, she bring her. Likes back. Yeah, and that's what I yeah. said too. I, um, I thought you mentioned somewhere someone else was bringing a wife. That's fine. Um, we usually take our dog backpacking, camping with us. Our dogs allowed on this trip island. Um, he is a yellow lab mix, and he carries his own backpack and food. Of food and water, he's pretty mellow and fun to have around. Um, if he's not allowed, I can make other arrangements for him. Um, I thought I heard you say you guys were going back to head back on Monday. My wife needs to be back for work on Monday. If everybody is staying till Monday, we might just head out Sunday afternoon. We are planning on being at Jim's Thursday night. I also need the address. Do we need to plan on having food for that night, or is everyone going uh, out? I'll, I'll cook that night. Or we'll go out um, or something. Don't okay. don't worry about that night. Just need to know the amount of food to bring. So that's sounds like it's going to be a great time. Thank you for organizing it. Okay, yes. So Thursday Thursday night, um, I'm providing dinner, or we're going oh, out to eat. Either way, that's nice. We'll figure that's something nice. out. You, you don't have to worry about Thursday night. Um, with uh, with regards to the schedule, um, we're gonna. I'm gonna, I'm playing it by ear. Uh, I do have to drive all the way back. Um, on Monday, I'll probably I'll probably call it quits uh, Sunday afternoon sometime and crash at your place and then drive back Monday morning. Would be my schedule. Um, okay. I, I don't know if, if other people want to stay on the island longer than that. That's certainly fine with me. Um, but I do have to be at work uh, Tuesday morning, and it's a 14-hour drive. Um, your as far as dogs, I don't care. Um, I just on your own, it would be a good idea just to research the rules and regs about um, <coughs> dogs and uh, on Boyce Blank Island. And if and if you guys, this is a big island. It's a big island. I think it's one of the biggest islands in the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. It's a big. It's way bigger than Mackinac Island. Um. So I. I and I don't think that there's an issue. There's no bears on the island that I that I know of. Um, there's no. I take that back. There may be bears on the island. There's no wolves on the island that we know of. Um, there's coyotes. So having a dog around probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah. Um, so 
with that being said, I, I don't have a problem with dogs. Um, remember, just keep them under control. I mean, I don't want them eating all my food. I'll be pissed. Yeah, and uh, because then because then <laughs> I become a connoisseur of dog meat. <laughs> yeah, I know how to. I know some a great recipe for dog kebabs <laughs> and dogs red beans and rice. <laughs> Speak. I had that for dinner last night. Actually, not dogs. Well, yeah, dogs. They were hot dogs. Oh, okay. hot dogs and red beans and rice. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Okay, uh, you have another one. Yes. Uh, dear podcasters, I must say I enjoy both of your shows very much. The best episodes are the ones where a subject is talked about at length, even with some philosophy, <laughs> and the ones with interesting guests. It's always nice to hear, learn something new and hear an opinion from someone that looks at something from a different angle. Um, the article Tony recently wrote about the EDC setup for of OZKI Oziki Oz I don't know triggered the following question: Is showing off your EDC a new phenomena, or is it something that existed before the internet era? Having have our forefathers had the urge to show off what slip joint they carried as well? Maybe some maybe through actual use in public or by whittling away at a time. Uh, showing off their hand, uh, their handkerchief by blowing their nose or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the day I discovered online that there were other people out there putting through in what they carried on a daily basis. I thought I was a rare breed, and it's, but it seemed the Internet was filled with people with like-minded like -minded people. Uh, this cannot be new, can it? That's that's an interesting thought. Um, so he's so he's basically he's asking, th is the internet making us all want to show off our shit, yeah. or have we always wanted to show off our shit? Uh, and and talking probably talking about um, kits to bring along and discussing yeah. what's useful yeah. in what situation, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I you know I think the discussion part of it is probably new because back in the day we all carried our shit around and all of my friends carried their shit around too mm -hmm. so we probably all had our kits with us so it wasn't anything special i think what's going on now is i mean how many people do you run across during the day that don't have a pocket knife I'm going to tell you, it's a lot. Most people do not carry pocket knives anymore. Right. That's a thing of the past. I mean, when you run across somebody with a pocket knife, it's a it ends up being a rarity, more than the the common man. Back, you know, a hundred years ago, everybody had a pocket knife. Right. Everybody had a pocket knife. Everybody carried. I mean, during the Depression, when the hobos were wandering the streets, they carried their kit with them on their back all the time. On like a little stick with a little handkerchief or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But they were cooking in rail yards. They were hopping freights. They were, you know, they were actually, you know, ru you know, like the Western the guys running roaming the the West. I mean, think about the guys roaming the West. They they carried their kit with them all the time. They carried their saddlebags. They carried whatever. I mean, most of their money that they had was with them. They didn't have banks. I mean, banks yeah. were robbed. You know. They were going from the drifters. They were going from job to job, carrying everything that they owned. Yep. Tr trying to figure out what their stake would be, so that they could settle down and have a family. Yep. But you know, you want you want some interesting uh, hobo history. 
I love hobo. I I love hobo history. It's okay. really so extremely interesting. So I have some. Um, actually, Iowa has a pretty strong uh, hobo history, just because mm-hmm. of all the rail lines and all the farms and things like this. And actually, mm-hmm. my family um, has some history with hobos. But the they were a hobo. No, you, you, <laughs> we did Well, we did, we had we did some hitchhiking, but they were gypsies. We we did some hitchhiking, but we were, were never never uh, classic hobos. Um, so there's what, a what, there's what a town the, in Iowa called Brit that has uh, a hobo festival or hobo days mm-hmm. or something like that, and mm-hmm. like all hobos, there's still people that live that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and all hobos from all the United States come to this one town, and they, you know, do all this hobo crap and make little hobo dinners and whatnot. Um, but but uh, back in olden times, when hobos were much more common, and they actually wanted to work for their money as opposed to um, just getting their EBT card, uh, they would come by your farm and ask, you know, hey, can I muck out some... Uh, calf pens, uh, you know, can I bale some hay for you, lift some hay, do some work, and then maybe get some grub and a sleep in your hay mile overnight. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, most that of was, the... That was extremely common. Yeah. That, that, was, that yeah. was actually what those guys did, mostly. Right. And so my, my family, being farmers, would get visitors constantly um, mm-hmm. uh, where we were at. And uh, the hobos had, like, some secret code... And uh, they'd find some post or something that was along the way on your farm. And they'd mark like some little secret code on there that the other hobos would know these are good people or stay away from here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but given the amount of hobos that we had coming through, um, we must have been good to hobos. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's a little hobo history. That's that's actually that's actually a lot of. Um, uh, my family history is like that too. We had my grandmother was a was a like my dad was born in 1927. So literally he grew up during the depression. And my so he remembers when he was a young kid these people coming to and we used to talk about this all the time because it was very intriguing to me uh-huh. that they that they did all this stuff and and they would put they would put marks on fence posts they would put marks on telephone poles. They would put, you know, the the um, uh, wireless poles that would go along the railway that mm-hmm. would literally say, you know, this place was okay, this place is no. These were God-fearing people. These were, and there was a complete hobo language, um, and it and it evolved. It revolved around um, rail systems. It revolved around the places that you could go to get food, rivers that you could fish in, water that was clean, um, and it was it was a huge um, it was a huge language. Yep. Um, and and uh, it's it's something that's it's kind of almost lost right now, uh, but. It was uh, it was big time back back in the uh, in the 30s and 40s when when these people were actually going from house to house and working trying to find some kind of gainful employment. That was what they were mostly trying to do was trying to find some place that they could actually have a job, then and they could send for their family. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, you, you, a lot of them, and my, and my dad said a lot of families actually came in tow with these people 
they would actually have a father, a, a, a mother, and maybe two kids that were, you know, walking age, and they would travel, um, you know, and, and, you know, my, my dad said that they would, you know, stay in the barn for a period of time. Yeah. Um, so, so before I answer the gentleman's question, uh, can I re- make a movie recommendation with hobos? Go ahead. The movie I would recommend you see if you want to see some of this stuff is called The King of the North. And it's got Lee Marvin and Keith Carradine in there. And uh, I think Ernest Borgnine is in there, but I might be wrong. Um, but anyway, that's a good movie. Maybe it's well, on Netflix. You can check it out. You know what? If you... Wh- <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all times... Mm-hmm. And and it's it's right up there in the top 100. There's definitely it's it it may be in the top 20. Mm-hmm. Is Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Okay. And it does depict that type of hobo traveling okay. method of traveling where they would steal a pie. They would you know um, these guys are moving you know trying to go trying to get to an area from uh, a, I mean they break away from prison. I mean have you seen that movie? Uh, I I tried to watch it and I fell asleep. <laughs> it's it's George Clooney and it's supposed to be uh, a, a kind of a, a a modern version of Homer's Odyssey. Right. And and so I guess if you want to get all esoteric, you could you could look at it at that level. But if you just look at it from the basic storyline and what some of the guys are doing while they're traveling. Uh huh. There's a lot of interesting things in there, and they and they historically hit it off pretty good. They do a pretty good job of of using um, the way people actually were during this period of time, uh, as um, you know, during the Depression and stuff that era. Um, it's 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 a very fun movie to watch, uh, and. They talk a little bit about the hobo lifestyle, about going from place to place, eating squirrel, eating gopher, you know, <laughs> something that they could catch on the way. Yep. Um, okay, I, I have a, a correction. Um, uh, it's not the King of the North. It's Emperor of the North, uh, and you can I've rent it on that. DVD from Netflix, but it's not streamable. So, uh, And it does have Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, and uh, Keith Carradine. Uh, let's see, to, to answer the gentleman's question, um, I would point to a very, very, very old book um, and that, that, accounts, that gives an account of the Mad Trapper of Rat River uh, and another movie that that was based on, Death Hunt with Charles Bronson. Mm. So this, this guy, Albert Johnson, uh, was up living up clear up in the middle of frickin' nowhere and it got in some trouble, and it ended up that the entire like Canadian army was chasing him and tried to run him down. And he he went some crazy distance, and it's all documented, it's all true. And uh, they finally caught up to him using an airplane. You know, um, that's how good this guy was. Um, and he went he he did like seemingly impossible things in in the mountains and and crossing stuff to evade the Canadian authorities. But if you get this book. They gave an extremely detailed inventory of what he was carrying. Now, why do you suppose they kept track of that so well? And why do you suppose they wrote it down? 
Well, because they were living in that in that area, and they figured they needed to use him as an example for how to do this correctly. Right, and so the the point I would make is is that all the way back to to olden times, um, I think that you know people that have to go out and do things for real, um, not you know make believe bushcraft fairy stuff. Um, and by that I mean like you know like Tinkerbell, not the bad way. Um, <laughs> you're going to go out and pretend to bushcraft, you know, and try to hide your car and the pictures and stuff. The guys that go out and do it for real think long and hard about what they're going to bring with them, and they'll talk about it and and talk to experts and things like this, and they'll go back and look at historical sources like, well, what did Lewis and Clark bring? What kinds of things did they bring? And uh, if you go back and look at some of the stuff they were carrying, I'm always, like, shocked at how similar to what the, ch- the choices they made in their gear are to what I made before I even knew that there was such a thing. You know, so mm-hmm. repair kits, stuff to fix all your gear, um, basically traveling light, you know, stuff that basically you got to know how to fix everything you're going to have with you if you're going to be out for a long time, and then... Um, want to travel light and that's basically the gist of what was in albert young's um pack uh he had a uh um a trapper trapper nelson pack so you can what a shit it's a trapper nelson pack and um that's a i i have one of those somewhere it's an they were very very popular you used to be able to buy them in the 50s and 60s at surplus stores um Anyway, that's and you something can you can still make at. one. You can yeah, still you can, make you can easily make one or whatever. But anyway, that's that's the pack he was using, and he had a bunch of repair kits and stuff to repair his snowshoes and stuff to repair everything that he had. So um, I think that s- people who are serious about woods and have to have knowledge and depend on that knowledge have always paid a lot of attention to their gear and what they're carrying and talked about it. It's just that we see it more now um, because uh, we're all much more connected and you can watch a video and all this kind of stuff and uh, see and get, and do research that way. So I think it's more noticeable now, um, but I think it's always been there. Um, some of the most popular videos on my YouTube channel are the ones where I go through, um, you know, okay, here's what you take, here's what I've taken on a... Uh, jungle expedition you know here's here's the pack that i'm about to leave for three weeks to go through jungle here's what i'm bringing and here's why and those are some of the more popular videos on my youtube channel because you know it's it's fun to see what other people bring and and what their reasoning is and i i don't think that that's necessarily a new thing i don't know that's my right. take on it no no i think you're i think you're probably right i but i i just don't think it was as widely i don't think it was as widely Publicized. I mean, you you wouldn't pick up a a newspaper and see that in it, and no, and, uh, you know you yeah. would. That was something that was kind of quietly talked about amongst themselves. Yeah, you know yeah. the 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 people on the expeditions. Yeah, um, or they might have learned something because what they had worked, but what John Doe over there has got John Joe Dokes has got. He, it might be a little bit better. He he's sleeping a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Um. You know, you had the basic skills, but it was it ended up being what 
what just works a little better. Right. And, and you notice, and you just notice it. It's not that he was showing it off. The other guy was showing it off. It's just that you notice that he was doing something a little bit different. You might ask about it. Right. Hey, I just noticed that you've got that little, what the hell is that little thing you got right there? Yeah. Oh, this, this thing right here, this is how I clean my pipe out a little easier. It's easier than the jackknife. Yeah. You know, or it's, you know, or, you know, I'm using this to strike my steel with, you know, and, and I think that that was something that was done. Yep. Uh, very commonly. And um, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of um, reading about historical expeditions. Like if you read uh, anything about Shackleton stuff or um, Lewis and Clark, they they focused intensely on what they were bringing and why. And they went they poured over and over and over and over lists of gear well, and, the one and thing had justifications the... for everything. And uh, there's very good records of of everything that was ever brought on an expedition and why. Let's see. So I am holding up uh, to uh, Jim's little video camera there a handwritten letter from one of our listeners. And up again. I got. I got to get to the big screen so I can see it. Oh yeah, no. Nope. Handwritten, uh, sent through the the actual mail. Wow. And, uh, on the back of this is a um, this guy. I, I know he's. Uh, my naughty cousin, um, but uh, I've referred to him in numerous other uh, media formats as our man in the field. Uh, he's okay. a he's a farmer, um, does all the farming stuff, uh, and he lives on those. Well, he, he operates those farms that I was talking about that all the hobos came by, and so in this little town, yeah, they have a teeny tiny little grocery store, and if you look at the back of this sheet. The guys at the uh, grocery store <laughs> put out a with a typewriter, like you know, like olden times, like you hit the little thing and it has the little bell and all that. Uh, a country store newsletter, and this one's dated March twelfth, twenty. And it's probably it's it's probably mimeographed. <laughs> yeah. Well, at any rate, they talk they talk about like some community news. So there's going to be a Vegas night. Um, they talk about different. Uh, specials that are going to be offered at the one particular restaurant in town so it says the menu for this week thursday hamburger steak baked potatoes corn friday chili grilled cheese monday chipped beef over mashed potatoes corn tuesday salads berries you get the idea so it talks about the menu <laughs> and uh they talk about specials at the store for instance um john morell sandwich bologna is 279 uh <laughs> Jenny O turkey ham is uh, three eighty nine a pound. You can get some Johnsonville brats for uh, five sixty nine. So nice. you know it's like this is this is um, this is where he lives. Uh, it's pretty cool. So he says. Um, uh, that's the internet. What's that? That's the internet for them. Yeah, it, that's basically their. Uh, and actually, this is this might be the wrong. Uh, Letter. Give me two minutes here. I got to dig up the other one. Um, where is it? Oh, here That's it is. That's funny. Yeah, actually, he sent me two of them. That one I've already read, but here's the here's the uh, one from that I just got. And actually, okay. um, I'm issuing a correction on Thursday. This particular restaurant is having spaghetti, lettuce, salad, and garlic bread. <laughs> I'm so hungry right now, I could eat that. North end of a skunk going south. <laughs> right. 
Well, here's uh, and then the pork cutlets are two ninety nine a pound, and this is from July 9th. Um, awesome. The That's freaking awesome. Okay, so he writes. Uh, Hello, Kyle. Thought I'd uh, quick check in before going out to the sp- spray some. Uh, 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 what is this? Ten- I don't even know what that word is. Something at or before the drew dries off. Dew dries off. Uh, he's got some uh, pests or something he's trying to spray. There's been uh, new directions in the store setups or stove setups. I pack along camping, and that is the Esbit Alcohol .985 liter cook set with heat exchanger pot. Not that this is a replacement for the Trangia, but a supplemental tool, more compact and excellent for soups, gumbos, or other one-pot meals. So he's he's kind of like me. I'm into like little neat uh, niche cooking systems, and he's actually the one that kind of turned me on to the Trangia. Says mm-hmm. also such excitement in my knife world that it is best reserved for blade to blade meeting soon. On that note, if you're interested, I'd like to donate a new inbox Queen Country Cousin with green uh, linen micarta for the podcast drawing. Oh, sweet. Yep, so I'm announcing that, and I'll put a uh, thread up uh, on the uh, forums. He says, I bought two, and have been carrying the one with uh, maroon Delrin handle scales. With some stonework, it now has a good edge. The green one has a better factory edge. I just like the color of the Delrin better. Um, Let's see, and he describes himself as, an old school old fuck with both feet firmly planted in the 20th century and one of them wanting to get planted in the 19th. <laughs> uh, I have a friend like that. And then he says, and he, I, I've got more background on him. Um, another find I'm excited about but have yet to test is my Great Eastern Cutlery Number 71 uh, Bullnose Farm and Field Tool with Maroon Micarta Scales. Looks to be a keeper. So, uh, Great Eastern Cutlery, as um, some people are in the privilege of knowing, uh, is the the maker for um, knives ship free uh, Northwoods line. Is that public knowledge, or can I say that? Or no, no, I think so. Okay, so well, they're not the only ones. I think they. I think he has more than one maker that makes those for him. Okay, um, which is we're talking about Derek. Yeah, Derek at Knives Ship Free. You know, who is is one of our sponsors. Yep. Um, and I didn't get a new commercial for him yet, so um, if you could run one of the old ones, it'd be great. I, I, I will. Um, okay. <clears throat> but, uh, no, he has a couple different makers that make them for him. Uh, and, and Great Eastern is one of them. Yep. They're, they do a phenomenal job. Yep. So in in other news, he sent me a couple emails after I told him we'd love to have the knife as a giveaway. He says, uh, in late June, a windstorm went through the area and pretty much wrecked his East Grove. And so, yeah, I know, we we have all these old, uh, or he has, all these old walnut trees that my, like, great-great-great-grandfather planted. And some of them, the tops blew down and whatnot, so he's having some issues there. And then, let's see, what else he, he says... Hey, this morning I went back a couple of months to listen to episode 47. Around the three-quarter point, Jim mentioned uh, harvestor silos. 
How well I remember when the big push was in the 60s and 70s to put those things up. They are often referred to as blue tombstones as they financially <laughs> ruined nearly everyone who made the mistake of putting one up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. So that's, our, nope. that's news from our man in the field. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, um, uh, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, A.O. Smith built those, and um, they were very pretty. I mean, every farm that had them was very, usually neatly manicured. Not always, but usually neatly manicured. And uh, they were, they were basically um, made like a water heater, because what A.O. Smith makes water heaters. <laughs> and so they were porcelain-lined um, silos. I mean, they were big. They were big chunks of steel that were like, like. Have you ever seen the 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 blue um, the tin uh, uh, plates that have like a blue porcelain? Yeah, yeah. I, we, I, they still have them down here. I yeah, still yeah. See you them. still can get those. Yeah. Okay. Well, no. The, so I'm, the, you still can. You can still see those silos. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think they make them anymore. They probably think, don't because like they're big, big waste. But yeah. they're still up. The guys yeah, that yeah. have them still have them. And I, but I don't think, like I said, I don't think they make them anymore. I could be mistaken, but I don't think they make them anymore. But that was actually glass on the outs. They were actually like that, like those porcelain uh, plates. Oh, cool. Porcelain covered plates, and and uh, but they would chip. I mean, you know, they they could chip if you shot at them. <laughs> Which. Don't ask me how. No, I never. <laughs> I but but I worked for a guy one time that had somebody had shot, uh, uh, tried to shoot a hole through one of them, and it, he cracked the glass, and they they started rusting hmm. when that happens. But uh, yeah, they are. Um, and if they weren't if they weren't uh, unloaded properly, um, if you forgot to open the seals in the top or or one of the. Um, when they were unloading them, if they, if the bags plugged up or something happened, they could actually co- implode or collapse. <laughs> yeah, because of the vacuum. Because <laughs> the vacuum that it created. Yeah, they're they're pretty pretty interesting pieces of work, and they were expensive. I mean, you think about how much thirty thousand dollars was back in nineteen seventy. Oof, that well, was a lot of money. Yeah. So, tw- or uh, in even in six in the sixties. Yeah, a, a yeah, fifty-seven Corvette brand new was three thousand. Yeah, no. Yes, it must have been oh, cheaper than that. I'll bet. No, three thousand. You could buy a fifty-seven. <clears throat> I had a I had a nineteen seventy Chevelle Supersport, the one that everybody wants today. That was worth like a million dollars. And the sticker on that was twenty-seven hundred dollars. Yeah, but it's a Corvette. That was nineteen seventy. Chevelle Supersport. It literally was the last of the muscle cars. Yeah, but I in fifty seven, um, fifty the fifty seven Corvette was three grand. Um, but you know it's a Corvette. It's not a Chevy. It's it's like a different different level of car. Like today, like uh, a Mustang or the the equivalent would be um, yeah, like a Mustang. Um, what you're describing, the, the Chevelle was like the Mustang of its day. So you compare the price of a Mustang now to a, a Corvette, it's a completely different world. Um, Do you know how much a pickup truck costs right now? Right now, a lot. Right? A lot of money. An, an, an F-350 four-wheel drive diesel 
is about fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars for one that's not loaded up. Well, most, fifty-five most, or sixty thousand dollars. Well, F F one fifty is probably what most people are going to buy. They're, the yeah, and the, they're and they're how much? They're thirty-five thousand. I don't know. Um, I mean, for yeah, the love it's, of it's, God, it's my expensive. my Jeep. My Jeep yeah, is $20,000. So you can get an F-150 depending on options according to Ford's website for between twenty five dollars and $50,000. Yeah. How mu- <laughs> my, my Jeep, my Jeep today to replace my Jeep is $50,000. $50,000. I remember 1977 looking at them for, for thirty nine fifty or something like that without a top. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know. My dad said, what the hell would you buy one of those for? It doesn't have a top. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't have a roof. Bam, dad, but it's cool. Yeah. You're out of your mind. So I ended up buying a uh, an F-250, and it cost me $6,250. Wow. That's $6,200. Wow. And it was pretty, it, it had a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. Didn't have, didn't have carpet and didn't have leather seats, but it had a lot of... Uh, Wait no, didn't have a lot of stuff on it. It had AM FM radio on it. Well, that was it. Yeah, but the but the you know that's that's uh, what the value that of was money is. 19, done. 1977. So you know when you decide you're going to do like quantitative easing, which is like bureaucrats speak for printing money, um, that's what happens. You don't make any more money, so you no. still make you know thirty thousand a year. Um, but everything's more expensive because the money that you're making uh, is worth less. I think back in 1970, in the in the 1970s, it was only like the top 25 income producers in the country made 25 grand a year. Jeez, something. I mean, it's some uh, some number like that. That was it was very. M- most people made. What? Well, you know, my grandpa. I my grandpa retired from Ford Motor Company, and he was a a quote-unquote metallurgist, okay? So he really wasn't a metallurgist, mm-hmm. but he did their tests for for the for the Rouge plant. He did their... He was like a technician, I guess you would call him, but they called him a metallurgist. Right. Um, okay, he worked for Ford for, I want to say, something like 40 years, okay? And he moved into that position as a metallurgist probably the last 20 years of his career. Yep. Of his career. He was an hourly man. Probably when he retired in 1974 or 73, he probably made, I bet you he didn't make $10 an hour. I, I would almost make book that he did not make $10 an hour. Hmm. That was a lot of money back then, though. In 1974? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By today's standards, it's not so much. But he retired in 1974, and he lived until 19... I'm trying to think when he passed away, 1997, 98, something like that. Um, I, mean, I, I don't remember the exact date, but it was quite a few. I mean, he lived quite a few years after he retired. And my grandma lived longer than that yet. And when when he passed, his retirement went away too. So they only had savings left, their savings account left. When my grandma passed, they still had like $50,000 in the bank. Wow. In the savings, in her savings account, hmm. and that was just from good old fashioned saving a portion of your, you know, a portion of your paycheck and a portion of your pension. I mean, when he his pension was probably I don't know maybe fifty fifty percent of what he made 
his weekly wage hmm. was what his pension was. I mean, it wasn't, and you add that with Social Security, and and he they still save money. Hmm. Okay. Do you think anybody does that today? No. <laughs> no. Most people are are so upside down with their credit cards that student loans. Oh, forget. Okay, now people. Um, You're never going to pay back your student loans. Oh yeah, I know. I'm I'm killed with student loans. Um, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> it just depresses me. Okay, depre- so well, I heard I heard Obama's forgiving that. No, he's not. I heard, yeah, he can't. I heard that it's all the young people are just going crazy over him. He's going to forgive all those student loans. Okay, uh, before we go any further, um, we've now so, given so, you an hour and, oh, probably an hour and, by the time we edit out the break, probably an hour and 40 minutes of uh, content that is not <laughs> political or whatever. Um, the rest of this uh, podcast, it's not going to be long because I don't, I don't have a lot more time. Um, it's not going to be long, but I'm just going to tell tell you if you are if you have a weak stomach, um, if you are a collectivist, if uh, you feel that you are entitled to other people's money, um, you you better just quit right now. Um, just turn it off and wait till the next podcast. Uh, you have been warned. Okay, so here it is. <laughs> so, so just one what? one second. Okay. So lead the the hipster lifestyle on student loans, and then get it forgiven by Obama. How about that? That's the shit there. That's that'd be awesome. I'd vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I'll buy I buy that for a dollar. <laughs> I have something to talk to Jim about. So I was uh, in Des Moines um, at the intersection of. Uh, I-35 and I-80, and I was driving on I-80 East. I-35 comes all the way up from Texas, basically goes all the way down to the border. Um, And uh, I'm driving on I-80 East, and I see this big, huge chartered bus um, pull on and and pull in front of me. Was it full of Guatemalans? It was a big chartered bus. It had U.S. government tags on it. And... uh, in the rear window was a big sign uh, with a little, you know, the crazy colored shit on there. And it said, uh, Brutus, comma, M-I, or bust. Shut up. And, uh, They're not coming up here. They have to work. Okay, so... <laughs> Guatemalans would not like it here. It gets snow in the winter. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> but I did hear that there's some, there, there is uh, a couple uh, camps in the, in the Thumb area. That, well, there's that, a there was a big story today that there are there they are putting them up in Michigan up in the upper yeah, peninsula. They are, well, I hadn't heard the upper oh, peninsula. Oh, oh, them fuckers would not want to be up there in the wintertime. <laughs> well, I mean, they, you know, you go from Guatemala to, I mean, even right now it's cold for them. 
Oh, I'm sure. Up here. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, in the 70 right now, but yesterday was 50 degrees. So anyways, you can bleep that out too if you want. I'm gonna. Um, but, but basically what they're saying is that if, if you get to this country, you have to have this process happen. And its process is, includes courts, lawyers, and detention before they get put on a bus and shipped home. And so I, I'm, uh, from my understanding, what they're trying to determine is, is if this person is declaring political asylum, is declaring that they're not safe in their country, and that's why they're coming here to seek some kind of shelter, or if they're just here to, to invade the country. And I guess the only way you could get sent home is if you're determined that you're just invading the country. So, fast forward a couple years, you get the drug cartels that are getting, uh, you know, wanting to, to cause wreak havoc in the country. And you have liberals that are trying to wreak havoc in the country. And what do you say? Let's invade the, let's invade the southern border with kids. So we're going to just dump 50,000 kids into your system and overload your system. And the whole way to do that is, I mean, that's, that's the way you break down the system, is you overload it. Yeah, and then you got the, instead of patrolling the border, you got the border agents, like, you know, Amazing. reading nursery rhymes and crap. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, so, that's, so that's, what you, that's what you have here, people, is you have a complete and utter invasion with the sole purpose of breaking down the system. Okay. That's it. Breaking okay. down the system. Okay. So what needs to happen is, okay, guys, we're at war now. We are literally at war. And they're throwing, ba- they're, the baby bombs is what they're throwing. Okay, so the, I, did, I did a little research after I saw that um, bus filled with Guatemalans. Uh, it didn't really say Brutus on it. Yeah, it said Brutus, and it was spelled with like a backwards B, and like <laughs> the S was backwards, and it said like, or bust. You're so full of shit. And it had like little <laughs> flags of these weird third world countries on it and shit. So you're you're about to get slammed. Yeah. Anyway, so after I saw this bus, I said, you know, the uh, the media really isn't covering this because when when we first started hearing about all this stuff happening and all these people just showing up at the border, kids and stuff. The media, New York Times, all these different places were like, "Oh, it's not really happening. That's not really Dude, a problem." Harry Harry Reid is saying the the border secure, right? And they're they're still trying to Harry Reid and 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 other collectivists are still trying to say nothing to see here, move along. Well, the media at first was trying to say that they said, "Well, you know, there's no problem on the border. This is all trumped up. This is because people from." Because Drudge is linking these ridiculous stories, and now everybody thinks it's an issue. Well. As it turns out, really, it is an issue. So then it's they a had serious to, issue. Right, they had to backtrack, and now they're saying, well, you know, it's just, uh, you know, like infants and toddlers and crap and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, if you, don't, if you don't agree with this, then you're, uh, you're racist. You know, that's spelled R-A-Y-C-I-S-S, racist. <laughs> Um, so they 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 get all so they're they're the press now has an evolving storyline for this so so that you, to to first they tried to cover it up now they're trying to explain it away as this and that and trying to put the best spin on it possible so I I said well you know I'm not a member of the press I'm a hayseed hick from Iowa 
Um, but I have this little podcast with about twenty thousand subscribers. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you Radar. You're like Radar O'Reilly. <laughs> Where's your teddy bear? Uh, I don't have one. <laughs> but um, anyway, I'm I'm just a a hayseed hick from Iowa. Uh, you know, I'm not a member of the media. I'm none of this. Uh, I'm not a elite. You know, like I'm basically a peasant. Um, but I do have a a podcast with about 20,000 subscribers. And uh, I've, I've decided that uh, I would do a little investigative journalism since our fucking press won't do it. Okay? So I, I went and I, I consulted this thing which is called a globe. Okay? Some people may have heard of them. It has... It's this round it's not, thing it, that you it's can, not like Google Maps. Isn't that well, like a it's like a round version of Google Maps? It's like this round thing <laughs> that you can spin around and you can see where these things called countries are. Although you know countries usually have borders, and since you know it's racist for us to have a border, so really the whole concept of a country is now racist. But there's this thing which is called a globe, and I I got out this old dusty globe and I spun it around and I looked. For Guatemala. I'm like, oh, well, Guatemala is just south of the tip of Mexico, and it's the first country that you run into that is considered Central America. And I'm like, wow. Um, so Guatemala is clear the fuck down there. Uh, it's like at the bottom of the ice cream cone. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, it, that's a long ways to go. I wonder if there's anywhere else around there, like, closer that they might want to go. So I got to looking at some of the countries around there. Um, right around there is uh, some great places like Belize, um, Costa, these are Costa Rica. These are great vacation spots. And then to get, to get up to America, you would have to pass great places in Mexico. Like, you'd walk past, like, Puerto Vallarta, all these, like, hot, awesome destination spots. So my question was like, well, you know, that if I was in Guatemala and I wanted to get the hell out, you know, for some R&R, I'd go to like some places that were a little closer. And um, if, if I was going to like, you know, flee the country for a little bit longer, a lot closer to me than the U.S. would be, um, oh, I don't know, like say Colombia, uh, Peru, Brazil, Ecuador, uh, you know, Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, these are all great collectivist places. You know, these are places that, you know, we're trying to emulate because, you know, most of the industrialized world and most of the civilized countries in the world are collectivist. And this is what we're trying to model. So if I was looking there, I would say, well, why wouldn't I go there? Um, it's closer. Or how about this? Um, Cuba is a short boat ride away. Why wouldn't I go to Cuba? Because it's communist, you know, and it's great, and everybody fucking loves it, and all this stuff. And, you know, they're not racist. Of course they would. It's racist to not allow me to take over your country, so of course they wouldn't mind. All right, so that was one question I had that I, I went and did a little research on. The other thing is, is I'm like, well, how many people are actually coming here? And I looked at a bunch of different sources, and there was an article in... Let's take the one of the chief liberal rags that, you know, is like supposedly like the most respected source. Okay, so let's take the New York Times. What? How many people do the New York Times say have come into the country um, from Guatemala? They say 52,000. Infants and children. Okay, 52,000. 
since October. Uh, and the estimates are that it's going to be anywhere from a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand um, yeah, before the before, before the done. year is out. Okay, so I took the middle number, um, and I decided I would use a hundred thousand as the number of people, infants and children, you know, these poor suckling babes from Guatemala that were going to come up here. Okay, what's the population of Guatemala? Thirteen no million. Idea. Uh, like 800,000 by their estimate. Now, it's it's a little bit hard to estimate the population of a country where people fucking live in mud huts, okay? It's a little bit hard to take a census when you have to walk down a trail and maybe get swallowed by a fucking alligator, okay? So the <laughs> estimate is it's 13,800,000 people or so. 100,000 people, conservatively, is... And this is the least number, is about 1% of their population. 1% of the population of an entire country left Guatemala, crossed the Guatemala-Mexico border, went the entire length of Mexico, and then crossed another border. 1% of an entire country. How the hell did, did they do this? that? I mean, I guess that's the, that becomes and, the big question. Well, how did, how I, I, the hell did well, that Well, I'm just getting started. One <laughs> percent of an entire country left their country, crossed another country, and crossed another border to get into a third country. Okay, that's that's me assuming that the only place they went was the United States. You know, if right. it makes a fuckload more sense to me that I would go to Belize or Costa Rica. They're fucking touching the country. Why wouldn't they right. go there since they're such paradises? You know, right. so... One percent of a country leaves. That'd be like in the United States, we have um, uh, 300 and some million. It'd be like three million Americans leaving. That's like the entire state of Iowa getting up and walking away. Okay, the entire fucking state of Iowa decides that they're going to walk to Mexico. Okay, now let's talk about the distances involved that these infants and toddlers are covering. Okay, the distance from Guatemala City to El Paso is 1,971 miles. Infants and toddlers are covering that distance unalone with their little binkies and their blankies and they're toddling along all that way. Okay, okay so I'm just going to take that at its word. Um, now let's say that 1% of the United States de- decided to make a uh, similar journey um, and uh, we'll, we'll just say the entire state of Iowa. They decide to leave Des Moines, Iowa, and walk to Mexico City. That's 1,825 miles. So the the little toddlers from Guatemala went um, about 150 miles further, um, uh, and the population of Iowa would be adults, and they only have to do one border. So that gives you an idea of the scope of the news story here. The press will not cover it. They will not cover one of the most amazing and enormous migrations with the most and hugest consequences for both countries involved that has been certainly in our lifetimes, if not forever. One percent of a country gets up and walks away, and they don't cover it. It's amazing, isn't it? It, The reason is we don't have an adversarial press anymore. And this is the problem. We have a press that are basically toadies. 
They want to go to the White House press course dinner and get their selfie with Beyonce and Jay-Z. They don't mm-hmm. want to ask hard questions of the people in power, which is what their job is, because they want that selfie. They don't want to get you know shut out of the cocktail parties and this and that. So for our press, it's more important for them to get these superficial bullshit things than it is to actually do their job. The press is supposed to be adversarial to the people in power. Instead, they are now the people in power. That's why they're not covering it. What's right. to gain? What what do what do they gain? And and this isn't something that I can research and provide facts for. I've just laid out a whole shitload of facts. Now the question for our listeners at home is why are they not covering it? What do they gain by not covering that story? And that's research Voters? for you to do on yourself. Voters? I don't know. Certainly, okay. it, certainly <clears throat> if it were me, and, and I was witnessing one of the large... It's bizarre. It, you're telling yep. me that infants and toddlers fucking walked across two borders, across the entire length of Mexico, 1,971 miles, 100,000 of them, and you're not going right. to cover that? You're not going to ask a single question about why that happened? What the hell is how wrong with you? H- how it happened. Right. I guess that's the that's the biggest deal is how did it happen? The o- how the hell is it possible? The official line is is that they made the trek on their own. Bullshit. Yeah. What are they covering right. up? You know, and the press yeah. won't won't ask any of those questions. You know, and, and that's the problem. I don't care about the party in power. I don't care which party did it cuz both of them are complicit. What I care about is the fact that we don't have a an adversarial press anymore. Right. And that's a problem. You know, well, you have a press that won't vet presidents anymore. Right. And it's a big deal because if it had been the other side in power and was doing this, a non-collectivist, what would happen? Well, you tell me. You'd have the adversarial press. What was what was the difference? In, and this is something that our, our readers can answer for themselves. I'm not trying to convince them of anything. They need to go back and look at the coverage of of similar presidents uh, from another party and, and see see the number of favorable stories versus unfavorable unfavor- stories and the treatment that that um, the press gave them okay that's a problem when when your press is rooting for one party and they're not adversarial at all you got a problem Jim Bob mm-hmm and, and that's the problem it's like it, I, I don't care if like you know, the, the immigrant thing to me, really, I don't care. Uh, the thing that I really care about is that we don't have a press that's doing its job. Right. And that's a big issue. That is seriously a big issue. Um, but anyway, that's what I thought of when I saw that bus on its way to Brutus. <laughs> well, I don't I don't think it's going to be on the way here, but <laughs> well, we'll see. It's ridiculous. Well, listen, I think we've uh, we've already pissed off enough people right now. <laughs> hey, we warned them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do have warned. I do have one piece of happy news. Um, you'll like this. Here's some happy news for folks, so that we can end on a positive note. Okay, so it is now July seventeenth. Two days ago, Wizards of the Coast released what is sure to be one of the gaming industry's biggest stories and biggest things in the last generation 
they released the Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition starter set. Wow! Boom. Yes, booyah! Nerds everywhere have gone crazy. I started a group to play through that over the interwebs, and some did you, of the did you make me a member of that? Uh, you are already playing. You just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'll explain. So, um, so here's the, the evil thing. mustache man. I, if you if you want to play, I can certainly set you up. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, don't I don't know think that I, you'd enjoy it. I don't it. think I. Yeah, I, I, I really don't. I've never yeah. played that game, so I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you'd it. enjoy it, but you're playing anyway. So, basically, it's a it's a thing where you you have a a guy that like describes some adventure and then you make choices and you roll dice to see what the outcome is these sorts of things and it, it's it's a fun game um but uh it's new edition with new rules and i recruited uh five five uh people to join and go through it and i was thinking that one of them would be you know the guy that was like the dungeon master because <laughs> you know I don't have any I don't have any experience doing that and and one of the guys is like got you know 30 years of experience playing this game he still he still plays it oh yeah oh yeah and, and um, he's a dungeon master he's well, a really good he, one he he would not he would not do it he would not what? he said that since I recruited the group it was my responsibility to be the dungeon master oh okay so who was that who said that was that Tim, Scott Tim Stetzer Oh, Tim? Tim plays that quite often? T Tim plays a game called Pathfinder that's a variation of Dungeons & Dragons, and he's played since the 80s. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so he's been he's been playing forever. So the group is uh, Tim, Stetz, Tim Stetzer, um, Scott Jonathan Eldridge, our illustrious moderator, uh, and then, uh, let's see, another guy. Um, I don't know if you know him or not. Kevin McGee. I'm going to give him a plug. Kevin McGee. He is um, he's the operator of Carolina Bushcraft, and so you can go to... Uh, I think I have met him one yeah, time. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Um, www.meetup.com forward slash Carolina Bushcraft, and you can find him there. You can also find him on Facebook, and he's told me, I haven't checked it out, that he started a, a uh, group for uh nerds that also like to monkey around in the woods called uh bushcraft geeks on facebook and so, so I'm, <laughs> I'm actually looking for that but anyway you should check him out he runs a good school and uh he's currently out teaching and stuff but um good guy so he's he's one then i have another player i haven't gotten permission to use his name yet but he's a college professor uh that i know um from growing up and then my uh brother who is a, an illustrious uh, computer guy, <laughs> IT specialist for Nestle. So um, nice. Yeah. So we got a we've got a uh, a cop, a soldier, a uh, college professor, an IT guy, and a survival instructor, and we're going to play through it. It's going to be fun. Now, where you come in is that, uh, of course, people are. Uh, you know, wanting to change things and do this and do it their own way, all these sorts of things. Uh, and uh, the problem is that uh, it gets more complicated and more difficult for me when they want to change things. So mm -hmm. 
Jonathan Eldridge, our illustrious moderator, decided that he wanted to switch from the sword that he was supposed to carry. Like, it comes with, like, pre-made characters, and it's just easier for me if they just use the pre-made characters. Well, Mm -hmm. he was fine with doing that, but he wanted to switch the sword he was supposed to carry for another one. And so you came in, and uh, they don't know it yet, but you're an extremely powerful dark wizard. (laughs) 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 And and so, so Scott... Can I be a white wizard? What? Can I be a white wizard? Uh, You're... Well, you're white. Okay. But um, you you have uh, uh, massinate. You want to control some shit because oh. there's a bunch of monkey business going on. You want to put a stop to it. So you okay. use like extremely powerful magic to um, to uh, con- to balance things. And um, it's not that you have a, a a bad motivation. It's that you you're using extremely powerful magic to set things right. Okay. Well, that shit is expensive. Okay, you gotta buy fucking bat wings. You gotta buy like eye of newt. <laughs> you gotta buy fucking like canthrope fur. You, you know, you know how hard it is to find a vial of, you know, beholder blood. It's hard. You gotta pay for that shit. So you're always looking for ways to make money. So you you said to to uh, to Jonathan, hey, listen. Um, you need a you need a new sword. Uh, I need some money. I tell you what, I'll give you a sword, um, the sword that you want. But I get one percent of your earnings from from this adventure. Nice. And he he initially agreed, um, but then uh, he decided after I did some math for him and showed him that his new sword would be actually worse than the old sword. He decided to back out of the deal. Oh, not a good thing. I don't like that. No, you don't. <laughs> it's so I can now, pretty much tell him that. Yeah, so now... Well, and the other thing is is that you're a ferocious trader. So um, any anyone who's ever seen you trade or has been involved in trades with you knows that you are ferocious at it. And so <laughs> you're, you're now... You now have some... Uh, we will see how the next interactions go, but um, I think... Uh, You'll you'll be a part of the storyline whether you want to be or not for quite a while, <laughs> and so I'll he's give. Not, he's not going to be happy with me backing out on a deal like that. No, um, I I think uh, I think some people are in for a little bit of a lesson. <laughs> so uh, just saying, yeah, well, just saying, you know, hey, and then uh, you know, so I'm using. You're going to have a plot line in there. It'll be fun. Oh, that's fun. And we'll have stuff to talk about. Because the thing is, those guys are all outdoors freaks. Right. Know? So right. it's it's somewhat relevant, and it, I'll keep people up to date uh, on the podcast and try to make it interesting for people. So now, now are you are you uh, um, are you doing this over Skype or are you doing this in a well? Well, uh, I, I wanted what kind of a format. Are you okay? Are you so communicating. So with? I wanted to do it over Skype, but. Um, uh, a bunch of the guys wanted to use a different program that's called Roll Twenty, and what Roll Twenty is is it, it's uh, it's like Skype, only you can have five little boxes at the bottom, or however many little boxes of the people that are in there that can talk back and forth and see each other. If you've got a webcam or just a mic, if you don't, you have a little thing at the bottom, and then up at the top, you can have a, a map of where you are 
and move little characters around and stuff like that. So you can have like a visual representation in addition to um, a you, mean, you mean a, a of representation of the game yeah, or a of representation the of the of the game of where you're at physically where you're at physically in the game okay and okay. so they wanted to play that way so I've been in the process of uh, uh, getting the maps uploaded and playable and all these sorts of things now uh, is that is that on um, it's called roll 20 yeah and it's free it's a freeware program uh it was a kickstarter project it's actually pretty powerful software and you can play you can have like background music playing <laughs> nice yeah so, so can, can i fun. join up to to watch you guys oh, yeah. play? yeah you can watch anytime you want i'll let you yeah. know when we're actually anybody can if if they want to send us an email at, at uh, uh podcast at knifejournal.com and you want an invite to our our game i'll i'll shoot out uh I'll put together a little email list, and um, hopefully we won't crash the server. Um, but uh, yeah, you can you can certainly come on and uh, and watch. I think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> but you you oh, can't uh, you can't interfere. I'm I'm playing you, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm I'm directing your actions. So. Okay. If you want to, so if you, you want to, but you if you wanted to ask me, would you? What would you do for this? Would you ask me? Yes. Okay. Uh, privately. All right. So that they can't hear, because then I would choose, I would, I would decide whether that was reasonable or not, and then okay, yeah, I'd, I'd ask you privately. Um, but uh, you'll I'll try not to kill anybody. Oh, listen, <laughs> they, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah, I it, it's it's going to be fair and fun, obviously. They wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Well, and I hope that they understand that. <laughs> because the very first thing that they do is uh that they're going to do is uh meet you very first thing and well, so you might as well have me kill somebody else well the the thing is, the is that a lot it, it listen it's all you're not you wouldn't just up and kill them no no not them right somebody else well the the point is is like you wouldn't just like if you and I were in a room and you were pissed off at somebody and you wanted them to pay you your money, you wouldn't just up and kill them. You'd talk to them first. Yeah. Right. And so I that's what pull off one of their toes, I think, first. Well, and then and then it can go a lot of different ways, right? So like, if 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 uh, you and I were in a room and you were pissed at uh, Billy Joe because he didn't pay you something, whatever, owed you a bunch of money, you'd say, "Hey, give me my fucking money," right? Right. And if they said no, then you'd say, well, there's going to be consequences if you don't. You wouldn't just necessarily attack them. And those consequences could be played out over the course of the entire adventure. Ah. Right? Little things could happen here and there. You could send minions to rough them up, to steal shit from them. You could hassle them until they gave you your money. The other thing is, it would go very differently if they decided, well, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to attack you. In that case, they're all going to fucking die. <laughs> They would never do that. Well, you'd you'd be surprised, you know. But uh, there's I swat them like flies. Well, honestly, like flies. honestly, the way I've got your your uh, particular character set up, it'd be over in a second. <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't even be. They wouldn't even get a chance to fart, and it would be over, That's... and it would be completely legal and according to the rules. That's funny. Yeah. So, but That's anyway, funny. it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to to watch that play out, um, you know, and make it fun for everybody. Obviously, I don't want to be a dick and kill everybody, but 
Right. You know, and then the thing is, is if they die, um, who says they have to die? Maybe they all go unconscious and they wake up in the basement of the dungeon um, with uh, ball gags in their mouth. And their yeah. pants down around their ankles. Yeah. <laughs> a la Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. And maybe they have to fight their way out of that. You know, so there's yeah. a lot of ways you can do it without without killing someone. Um, and uh, make it fun and exciting and interesting and well, stuff like that. I don't that. know if ball gags in a dungeon would be very fun. It'd be fun for me to put them there, though. Yeah. And watch well, them fight I, out. I, I wouldn't, uh, I would never do that. I would never do ball gags in it. I would never submit somebody to that. Well, you wouldn't. No. But I would put. I would. Put but a dark somebody, wizard might to teach I would him put a lesson. Somebody, I, I would te- I would. I would do something like this. I would put somebody's left hand on their right hand, re- reverse their hands, so that. Well, so you that could do that. Actually, actually, they they their hands operate absolutely the opposite of what they think it's going to operate. So the minute they would either withdraw their sword or try to swing their sword it would go the opposite way <laughs> you, you could also choose to turn them into a roach or any other sort of a thing you yeah. could uh you could just teleport away and and come back later when they're not expecting it and fuck them up i, mean, I would got a I lot of put tools their, in their arsenal i would put their nose upside down so if it rains water would go in their nose yeah they, it'd be a, a permanent waterboarding yeah that would be that would be awful <laughs> all right <laughs> so it, it, needless to say, you've got a lot of tools in your arsenal, and uh, we're going to try to be creative with how things go. Um, it's going to be All a right. lot of fun, and it's dorky and geeky, and I don't care. It's going to be fun. All right. Well, good. I'm glad you guys are having a lot of fun. Yep. Okay. Um, and you use knives and swords. Ooh, nice. Yep. And axes and bows and everything else, so it'll be fun. All right. Well, with that, I got some stuff I got to take care of. Um, so I'm gonna. I gotta head out. Me too. I got some business to take care of. So with that, I think we're gonna call this quits. I'm gonna download, upload, and do all of that sideload stuff. Yep. And get this saved up for you and uh, get you started. Okay. All right. So podcast at knifejournal.com for an email. Join us on. Uh, on uh, podcast, um, uh, the Knife Journal um, forums, like us on Facebook, and um, keep your knives sharp and your friends sharper, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Have fun. Bye-bye.